The title of our sermon this morning is, Are You Sure? And if you'll join me in your Bibles, we will be looking primarily at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Our key words for our worshipers in training are assurance, certainty, and faith. And if you're using that blue Bible provided for you in the seat back, you can find our text on page 1004. 1004. Now this week we are beginning a new uh, short series on the doctrine of Christian assurance. We just finished looking at uh, the book of Habakkuk verse by verse and we'll get back into another book of the Bible. But for the next few weeks, uh, four Lord's Days, we're going to be looking at the important area of the Christian life in assurance. And, And our prayer is that by the end of this, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you will have a greater assurance of your faith than when we first began. Now, I hope that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, that it will be evidenced to you in time as, we, as we're looking at God's Word about assurance and that the Lord might be pleased to work in your heart to bring you to saving faith and repentance. Now, many Christians have struggled with assurance of their salvation in Jesus Christ throughout the history of the church. Some of the most godly men and women of the faith have struggled with assurance. And I'm certain that many of you have struggled with knowing, with being certain that you are in Christ and that you can say with certainty that when all this life is over that you will rest peacefully and joyfully in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, through my years of pastoral ministry, this has been a recurring question that I've addressed with many of you. I've addressed at the the bedside of those who have been dying. I've addressed in the devastation and the aftermath of sin. I've addressed in seasons of spiritual dryness and depression that many have gone through. And at some point, all of us have likely done or said something or have have looked at our own lives and we have stared at ourselves in the mirror and asked, am I really a Christian? Am I really in Christ? And I hope through this series that we'll be able to answer that question for each of us in such a way that we will be certain of our standing with God. That we won't, we won't look at everything that can be looked at as we go through all of this uh, from the Scriptures, but I do hope that we'll cover enough that from God's Word we will be reminded of our standing in Christ. And so when we're being beaten down and broken to pieces by the world and our own sin and by the temptations of the evil one, we can be reminded of what God has said and the evidence He has shown us in our own lives. Now many people struggle with making assertions or claiming to have certainty about anything. In our day, the philosophy known as postmodernism is built on the premise that we can't be certain about anything at all and that the meaning of everything is ultimately interpreted by the person who is receiving the information, not by the one who is giving the information. And all of that sounds highly intellectual until you have someone who has a postmodern mindset and they want to be a structural engineer or brain surgeon. But the issue of doubt, and that's really what comes into all of this, is that issue of doubt, that's not a new concept. We see it in the Bible. We've seen it throughout history. 
During the Reformation, Martin Luther had many spirited debates with a man named Erasmus. And Erasmus disdained, he hated Luther's claim that it is possible to be certain of the truth of Scripture and to make a firm assertion about it. Now, Luther was quite unbridled in all of his responses to his critics and opponents. He responded to Erasmus and he wrote, The making of assertions is the very mark of the Christian. Take away assertions and you take away Christianity. Away now with the skeptics. Now, as thinking Christians, we agree with Martin Luther, I hope, but we can't just wave off the question as to whether or not we can be sure. It's an important question. It deserves an answer. And if you say, yes, of course we can be sure, I'm going to ask the follow-up. Are you sure? And when you say, yes, I'm sure, I'm going to ask, are you sure that you're sure? Can we do away with doubt as it pertains to our salvation? Or must we live in constant fear that we're living a lie? Doubt nags at our souls. But doubt can also be a servant of the truth. Of course, doubt is a good thing when it keeps us from believing things that are false and erroneous. When we hear something and we doubt that it's true, it's, it's good. It drives us to search out the truth. Doubt helps us to sort out the differences between truth and error and those things that are genuine and those things that are fakes. Perhaps you know the name Rene Descartes. He's considered the, uh, the father of Western philosophy. And in Descartes' quest for a clear, distinct, certain identity and ideas... He employed this application of sort of this, this rigorous and systematic process of doubt. And Descartes tried to doubt everything he could possibly doubt. And so he doubted what he saw with his eyes, he doubted what he heard with his ears, and even those things he touched with his hands because he believed that our senses can deceive us, and they often do. And he, had, he doubted authorities, and uh, both civil and ecclesiastical. Uh, he knew that recognized authorities could be wrong, so he, uh, he wanted to doubt them. And no doubt about it, I'm sure you're following along right now, it is, oh, it is the premise that Descartes made that concluded with this thought, and he developed this very famous axiom. He doubted everything until he got to this place where he said, I think, therefore, I am. And so this, according to Descartes, was as certain as he could be of anything. He could be assured of his own personal existence because he was able to think. Now, later on, other philosophers took on Descartes and his premise. David Hume attacked causality. Immanuel Kant argued that the self belongs to the unknowable, nominal re realm that requires a transcendental a perception to affirm at all, which means exactly what it sounds like, that Kant and nobody else knows what Kant is talking about. That's what that means. And if anyone ever tells you what Kant really meant was, then just stop listening to them because they don't know what they're talking about. Nobody knows what he was talking about because the idea is we don't want to affirm anything with certainty. And so we have to make up philosophical ideas that sound really smart, that sound really highfalutin in order to explain it all away. That's a philosophy trick. If I say enough words, 
in really confusing ways, everyone will just assume I'm right and we'll move on. Now, what does all of this have to do with our Christian faith? How does thinking about doubt as it was understood by, by secular philosophers, how does that help Christians who struggle with doubt and have attacks on our faith? Well, because the lesson we learn from Descartes When we begin to have doubts about our faith, we need to search for the principles that are certain. That's what he was doing. He was looking to find that which was objectively true, that couldn't be argued against, so we can can build upon the foundation of what is sure. And for him, that was the reality that his thinking proved his existence. But for the Christian, we have the evidences of God within us in our own hearts, written upon our hearts. We have the certainty of God's Word and what He has claimed and proclaimed to us that we can truly be safe in Him. In 1 John 5.13, John tells his readers, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. Giving assurance is the purpose of why John wrote his letter, 1 John. And that that verse is sort of the banner over this series of sermons. We are preaching about assurance so that you might know that you have eternal life. And where do we turn for that? We turn to the objective standard of the Scriptures, the objective principles that we have in the Scriptures, and, and those certain truths that are, are there so that we can look at them and evaluate our lives according to them in order to determine where we stand. Now, I believe, and I hope that you will see, that having assurance as a Christian is possible. It is God's desire that we know with certainty that we are in Christ. And God most certainly desires that we know we are His children and that we would live as His children with all the benefits of being His children. Now, of course, I'm basing this on the principle that Scripture is infallible and and true because it is the Word of God. I'm not going to take the time to address all of the skeptics with regard to that. But as Christians, that is our basic fundamental starting point for any discussion like this. We begin with what God has given to us. And that is His Word. And according to God's Word, there are areas of our lives that we can look at, that we can evaluate, and that as we do so, we can determine whether or not we are safely and faithfully walking with the Lord and have assurance of our salvation. Now, the doctrine of assurance is addressed in our Confession of Faith in chapter 18. I'm going to read a bit of it for you, but I will try to explain what it's saying. In paragraph 1 of chapter 18, it says that those who, quote, truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God which hope shall never make them ashamed. In other words, what's being said is what I have been saying, that we can be certain of our salvation. There are certain things we can look at in our lives and how it's playing out according to the Word of God that we can be certain of our salvation. In paragraph 2, it goes on to say, This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, 
but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit onto which promises are made and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. In other words, our assurance is based on the foundational truth that our righteous standing in Jesus Christ by faith alone is evidence of our life with Christ as it's worked out by the Holy Spirit in and through us. I'm not going to read through paragraph four of our confession, but it also addresses the fact that often we will experience doubt. Often our assurance will be shaken throughout our negligence to preserve in that, to continue to remind ourselves that we're in Christ. It happens by falling into conscience-wounding sin. It happens when we grieve the Holy Spirit. It happens when there's sudden temptation that may overtake us or by spiritual depression and even physical suffering. Sometimes we can doubt God's care for us and His concern for us as His children. So I really do want you to be certain of your faith and to not doubt that you are in Jesus Christ if you truly are. But that when you have doubt, you need to know it's not an uncommon experience for Christians. And it can actually be to your benefit because it, it pushes you to examine your own life and your own walk with God. But our confession is very clear that when we're confronted with doubt, we're reminded that despite, despite our doubts that we are preserved from utter despair, that God preserves us from being completely and utterly in despair in His kindness. He's given the Holy Spirit to remind us of the truths of His Word and to point us to the evidences of faith in our own lives. So today we have a more general overview of assurance, and in the sermons that follow we'll look at more specific areas. But let's look first at Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12. The writer of Hebrews writes this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Are you sure of your faith? This morning we're going to look at five ways that you can know that you have eternal life from this text this morning. The first, in verse 9, you can know that you have eternal life by the direction in which you are Going. Look again at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now, this text comes in the middle of a bigger context in which the author of Hebrews is writing about people who are apostate. In other words, those who have left the faith. Now, his point here was that there are those who are in church who are not really Christians at all. But they appear to be Christians externally, at least for a time. 
Eventually, they're going to leave the faith, and we need to be aware of that reality. It happens. There are people who are apostate. There are, there are people who even in themselves are convinced of their own Christianity and yet in the end prove to be apostate. There are even people who will die and assume in their death that they're going to heaven only to face judgment and to be told that they were never in the faith in the first place. And I know that doesn't secure a whole lot of hope when I'm trying to talk about assurance, But we can't affirm assurance while downplaying the reality of apostasy. In these these verses, these, these very things we're looking at this morning are going to keep us from being filled with such fear and doubt when we read these passages of Scripture that affirm the fact that many people are actually deceived. It's real. We need to be aware of that. It is a very real and present danger in our midst. However, What the writer here is doing is actually reassuring the believers. After he's talked about apostasy and those who leave the faith, he's dealing with those who are real believers. And after he offers this solemn warning, he wants to let them know that he doesn't believe that they're apostate. He he sees their lives and he believes that they are in Christ. He was encouraging them by telling them that he believed the best of them because he had seen the outcome of their daily lives. The things that were present within them were the evidences of true salvation. In other words, he looked to see what direction they were heading in. And all of the signs pointed to faithfulness and fruitfulness. They were, as far as he could see, genuine heirs of salvation. And this is actually the only place in the whole letter where he uses the language of deep affection when he calls them beloved. He doesn't do that anywhere else. Why is he doing that here? Because he's just given some very hard truth with regard to apostasy, and he wants to remind them and tell them with deep affection, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there's a lot that can be said about this aspect of our assurance and the direction we're walking in, but the author here is really giving a general statement that he's going to develop further in the following verses. But what he's getting at is that there is sanctification There is good works in our lives that are consistent with what the Scriptures teach regarding the genuine nature of saving faith within a person. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3 tells us, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Are you striving to live according to the Word of God? to walk in all of his ways, to honor him and glorify him with his life, with your life, to obey him, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a heart of love and thankfulness. If this is the direction of your life, there's very good reason to believe that you are truly in Christ. According to God's word and the nature of man, anyone who has a spirit of God within them will show evidence of sanctification through good works. And if those things cannot be denied by the individual as being present in their lives daily in some way, there's reason for confidence. Why? Because sanctification and good works, according to the Word of God, are supernatural. They're not anything that an individual can do or will on their own. If they're genuine biblical good works, they come from God. Jesus spoke of this very idea as he talked about the journey that we're on. 
He talked about what direction we're headed. He calls us to, to look and to be certain of where we're going. Remember Matthew 7, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In other words, the the road to destruction is an easy, paved, eight-lane highway to hell, but the journey to the celestial city of heaven is narrow, it is difficult, it is filled with many dangers, toils, and snares, but in the end is a great reward, and few will walk that journey. But a life lived to the glory of God is evidenced in one's journey in that direction, on that hard road, in the direction of godliness and holiness and truth. It's not easy. It is going to be filled with many trials. But in the end, it leads you safely home. In what direction are you walking? Secondly, from verse 10, we see, you can know you have eternal life because of the love that you have for others. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now we see the author moving from general to specific, dealing not just with walking in the right direction, but what we do along the way. And the first thing he addresses is our love for others. Remember when Jesus was asked, what is the most important of all of God's commands? He had a brilliant response. Remember he was being asked, Jesus, teacher, what, are the, what, are, what is the most important of the Ten Commandments? And they were trying to ask him a trick question, trying to trip him up to say that one was more important than the other and therefore accusing him of disregarding the entirety of the law. But what does Jesus do? He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what did Jesus do when he answered that question? He took the first four commandments of the ten and he summarized them as loving God. And then he took the second six commandments and summarized them all as loving your neighbor. In other words, all ten of them are important because all ten of them make up what God wants of us. And it could be summarized as loving God and loving our neighbors. This is a hallmark of Christianity, isn't it? Now, Jesus and the writer of Hebrews are not talking about having goosebumps because you hear a, love, a, a, a wonderful love song or being nervous about a person because you have strong emotional feelings for them when you're around them. The Bible's talking about love in action, the kind of love that is shown for God's glory. Love is, according to the Bible, primarily an action. It's something we do. So what do you do to show love to someone else? When you love others, regardless of what you think about them as a person, are you seeing evidence of your life in Jesus Christ? When you respond to the hostility of an enemy with mercy and grace, you're loving them. When you reach out to a brother or sister in Christ who is in need, even if they aren't the person you naturally gravitate with or spend your time with, you are showing love. 
When you die to yourself day after day to show your spouse and your children that you care about them by putting their needs in front of your own and their preferences in front of your own, you are showing love. You see, Christian love that assures us of our Christian faith is love that is primarily shown and it is not necessarily felt all of the time. Love is not about how we feel. That's certainly part of it sometimes, but true love doesn't have to be felt. It does have to be displayed. It's an evidence of your relationship with Christ. It's an indication that you are like Christ. Remember John 15 says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, that I give of myself for the benefit of others. It's an active love. Romans 5, 6 gives us an example of that. Paul writes that at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Again, action. For whom? The ungodly. In other translations, it says for God's enemies. While we were yet God's enemies, Christ died for us. Why? Because he was showing his love in action. So you can have confidence You can have assurance in the faith if you are moved to love others, no matter who they are, by dying to yourself and seeking to live to their advantage over and above your own. What do you do with your resources and your time toward those who are your enemies, who are your neighbors, who are your friends, your family, your brothers and sisters in Christ? All of that says a lot about whether or not you are being shaped into the image of Christ and whether or not you can have real assurance of eternal life. Thirdly, also from verse 10, you can know you have eternal life because of the way that you serve. Look again, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now notice specifically he's talking about certain kind of work, namely that which is tied to serving the saints. So another way we can say that is that you can know you have eternal life because of your desire and your willingness and your actual action in serving the body of Christ with your spiritual gifts. The point is, if you love Christ, you will love his church. And one of the ways that you love his church is to discover and use your spiritual gifts for the good of the church. This is a critical point of examination for all of us. In what ways am I serving the church? That's a question all of us need to ask of ourselves. Now, I need you to hear what I'm about to say about this. This can be a way of falsely assuring ourselves, particularly if we are so busy doing stuff that we don't actually have anything to do with communing with God himself. I think a lot of people that I've mentioned before that will arrive at the day of judgment to find that they were actually never walking with God or people who just made themselves really busy doing a lot of stuff in church but never actually had any kind of relationship with God. So this is a critical element of our assurance, but we also have to be very careful that we're not allowing our assurance to be based upon our works. When you face God saying, I was a Sunday school teacher. I was a nursery worker. I was a VBS volunteer. I cut the grass. I was a deacon. I was an elder. I was a pastor. I pressure washed the buildings. I filled the baptismal pool. My dad was a deacon. That's not going to cut it, is it? 
when we stand before God, our only plea, our only plea is that Jesus died for us and gave us a righteous standing that we did not earn and that we did not deserve. We must be very clear on that. Where does my hope lie? Not ultimately in my works, not in my service to the church, but in Jesus Christ alone. Only Jesus' righteousness, only the works that he has done, only his death and his resurrection, only Jesus' taking upon himself the penalty of my sin, only faith in Jesus by the grace of God alone. However, while we are not saved by our works, we have a salvation that works. And the motivation to do these works is not to earn anything before God, but to honor God with a thankful heart and a joyful desire to see His kingdom flourish and to multiply to the ends of the earth. So if you cannot identify that your spiritual gift is being used in some way to serve the body of Christ, you either don't know what your gifts are and how to use them and need to ask, or perhaps you need to examine whether or not your desire and willingness is what it ought to be if you are professing to be a Christian. Now listen, not everyone is gifted to be able to teach Sunday school. And I assure you, when something around here breaks, you likely don't want me working on it. It will cost us a lot more in the long run. Some of you break out in a sweat when you think about keeping a budget. And others of you will forego a vacation in the Virgin Islands to sit with someone to create a budget. You know who you are. Some of you are terrified to talk to others about the gospel. And you don't know if you can even get the words out of your mouth, but you can cook a mean fried chicken and waffles and have a warm, inviting home, and you can bring a non-believing friend and someone you know who can talk to them about the gospel into your home to make that evangelistic opportunity happen. You may not be able to sort out a filing cabinet or do payroll taxes, but you can run a lawnmower and a leaf blower. You see, there are many, many ways we're able to be used for the body of Christ, not just here at the church, but in the homes of others, our neighbors, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there are, as we think about this, as we think about being used, and if you hear of a need to serve and your first thought is that you don't want anything to do with it, there's a problem. We need to ensure that our motivations are right. Now, that's not to say that there are things that will come up that we, we don't want to do. There are plenty of things that we don't necessarily want to do. They're going to come up. But are we willing to do them for the sake of others, to serve the church? Because it's God's church, and we love her, and we want her to flourish and be fruitful. That's what we're looking for. And if that's in our hearts, if that's our desire, we have evidence of salvation and can have certainty of our faith. Fourthly, verse 11, you can know that you have eternal life because you are concerned with having eternal life. Look at verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Here, the writer of Hebrews is talking about having a pursuit of assurance, going after knowing that you know, being certain that you are certain of your standing with God. Pastors are often asked by people how they can know if they are truly saved. 
And I like to respond in the same way that Charles Spurgeon often did when he was asked that. If you are worried that you aren't saved, you probably are. And here's the point. If you care enough about whether or not you are truly a Christian and have this constant nagging thought that you might not actually be a child of God, there's a very good possibility that you probably do when you desire to know. That desire to belong to God stands alongside all of these other evidences that we've looked at. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 3, there were two women who came to King Solomon. Both of them were claiming to be the mother of a single baby. And each of the mothers had a baby, but one of the babies had died. And one of the mothers said to Solomon, her baby died, and at, the, at, the, at, at nighttime she switched them out, and uh, she gave me her baby that died, and I have the live one. The second mother made the same accusation. So they came to Solomon, asking him to determine to whom the baby really belonged. And, and Solomon had uh, his servant take a sword and hold the baby up. And Solomon said, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. And one of the mothers agreed, this is a reasonable outcome to all of this. This should be done. But the other one said, no, don't do that. Just give the baby to her. Well, who did the baby actually belong to? Well, in Solomon's wisdom, the point of all of this is to say that it was the one who wanted the baby to live, even though that might mean that she would have to live without him. That was the mother. But, but Solomon, in his wisdom, was using a principle that is built into the very nature of how things are, namely that our concern for something is directly proportional to how much we care and have invested. And that principle is equally valid as it pertains to our walk with God. If you are concerned about your relationship with Christ and yet you are seeking with earnestness to have assurance and to know that you are safe with Him, there's a strong indication that you are in Christ and that you are on the road to assurance. Are you worried about whether or not you are in Him? That's a good concern to have. And only someone who truly desires to know Christ because they're walking with Christ would have that concern. Lastly, from verse 12, we see you can know you have eternal life because of what you are longing for. Look again, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Are you longing to know God and to have a secure place in Him? Are you longing to see the gospel reach the ends of the earth, to influence your family and your friends and your coworkers? Are you desiring to see the church grow and to be a faithful witness to our community? All of these are gospel-centered. All of these are Christ-like desires and longings. And apart from the Holy Spirit in our lives, we don't have those desires. We don't have those longings. Even more, though, what is our motivation? I've mentioned this briefly already, but it's, it's worth considering in greater depth. What is it that I'm depending on to get me safely to heaven's shores? You see, the sort of ironic thing about having assurance is that the less we do in attempting to earn God's favor, the more sure we are of our standing with Him. If I have in my mind that God is requiring all that He calls me to as a Christian so that He can look at my works and give me a pardon for my sin, 
I'm always going to be trying harder to do better, and it's never going to measure up. I'm going to try and try and try, and I will fail, and I will fail, and I will fail, because I can never fulfill the perfection of which is Christ's standard and God requires. However, when my longing is to be in communion with God because I'm united to Christ by his life and death and resurrection on my behalf, when my longing is to know more of God and to have more of God in my life and to, and to rest in him and know him and to know his presence and to have peace in the truth about him and find comfort and joy and hope in his word, when all of that is in my heart, when all of that is my longing, I will rest and I will be all the more assured of my love for him and his love for me because it's not dependent on me. And so when I'm doing all of these things we've talked about this morning, when these things are present in our lives, we're not doing that out of a heart of effort to make known to God that we are doing enough in the right way so that he'll love us. Now, we're doing them because our desire and our longing to glorify the one who has already saved us is our true heart. So here's the golden question that we need to ask ourselves as we struggle through assurance. And as you look at yourself and you start to think about that, am I really a Christian? Do I really love the Lord Jesus Christ? Ask yourself this question, what am I depending on for my salvation? What am I depending on for my salvation? Because I assure you, all of your questions about whether or not you're a Christian when you truly are, are not based on the righteousness of Christ. They're based on your own works. They're based on your own deeds. They're based on your own attempts to be something and someone in your own eyes. And so you need to be reminded of where your assurance is found what are you basing your salvation on? Where can I find that I am safe in Christ? On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. If your hope and your salvation is in Christ alone, you're in a good place. You're not in a perfect place. You're in a place where you still need to grow and be changed and transformed and renewed day by day, but you're in a good place. And you're in a place where you can examine your life and determine if you are, in fact, living upon Christ alone, or if your works are entering into your hope for heaven. Well, brothers and sisters, we have this great promise from God that when we are His children, we are always His children, that He does not do away with us, that He keeps us that we are now and forever the children of God when we are saved. And that is a great promise. But we must go further with it that we can be certain that we are the children of God. And for some of you this morning, you're hearing this and you, you know, or as I say these things, you have a lot of questions. You don't see these evidences in your life. And I'm pleading with you this morning to examine your heart, to examine your life. Are you in Christ? Are you walking faithfully? What direction are you going? Do you have a love not only for those who love you back, but for your neighbors, for your enemies? Do you have a love for the world, a desire to see the gospel reach the ends of the earth? What is going on in your works? Are you working to serve the body of Christ using your gifts in your life? 
What is going on in your life? What evidences do you see? And if you don't see them, I'm pleading with you to look to Christ by faith that you might have life, that he might bring you to a place of repentance. And brothers and sisters, we can know that we are in Christ and walking faithfully by his grace and for his glory. And if we are, we will see these things in our lives. They're not always bright, they're not always colorful, they're not always on full display, but they're there. And as we mature in Christ, we will see them more and more and more. And so our prayer through all of this series is that God would be pleased to give us greater assurance in the days ahead as we seek to live upon Christ who has given himself for us, that we might know that we know that we know that we know that we are his very own possession. That is, brothers and sisters, the greatest thing that we could have, a true knowledge of our true faith that saves us in Jesus Christ. And if we have that assurance, we can live out all of these things that we've talked about this morning to God's glory and for the building up and good of his church. And that's the ends that we desire. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for the evidences that you've shown us in your word that when we are in Christ, we are truly in Christ and can be assured of it. Lord, all of us are keenly aware of our own sins, our own struggles, our own battle with our flesh and with the world and with the devil. And in those times when we have questions, when we have doubts, I pray, God, that you turn us to your word, that you help us to look at the evidences of salvation in our personal lives, that we would be reassured of who we are in Christ. Lord, you desire that we would know you and that we would know that we are your children. And so I pray, Lord, for those who are in Christ, that you would affirm in our hearts this very day that we are your children and that we have no reason to doubt that. But for those who are not in Christ, for those perhaps who are deceived, for those who have bought a lie of easy believism, of, of just saying certain things or doing certain deeds and have based their hope for salvation upon their own works, I pray for them, O oh God. I pray that you would work in their hearts, work in their lives to give them life in Jesus Christ. I pray you would do that in our midst this very day that we could rejoice in the hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone and that you would be glorified, that your church would be strengthened and built up and that we would go each and every day of our lives knowing, knowing that Christ is our Lord, is our Savior, is our greatest and nearest and dearest friend. And we pray you would do all of these things for your glory and we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.